word. So when we last left in chapter 11, the religious leaders, the self-righteous, were looking to seize the Lord. They were wanting to kill him. Chapter 12, verse 1, Then, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this the day of my burial. Kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Father, once again we just thank you for your word. We pray, Father, that we would see the rich pictures that are there. Believers coming together for a holy meal. A woman, Lord, who worships you with all of her heart, soul, and might and even the man, Lord, who would betray you. And so, Father, we just see these contrasts, and I pray, Father, that we would find ourselves in the midst of them, that we would check our walk and re-examine our status, and know, Father, that we are right with you. And so, Lord, we lift up tonight, again, just asking, Father, that you would speak to us in a very real and a very practical way. In our Christian lives, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. You be seated. So in our previous study, we saw Lazarus. Lazarus was dead. There was no doubt about it. His sister was concerned when they moved the rock that covered the tomb away that it wasn't going to smell too pleasant. And again, that point was just hammered home. But just as surely as that point was hammered home, there he is at this meal. He's sitting right there. Lazarus has been brought back to life. And again, this, is the, this isn't the ultimate. Salvation would be the ultimate, but... This is showing that Jesus Christ truly is Lord, that he's Lord over our lives, but just as important, he's Lord over our deaths, that he meets man in the midst of his death. Now we have, again, Lazarus as the, as the focal point here in what Jesus has done, but now we're going to have a, a little bit of shifting of gears. The Bible? The Bible is filled with weeks sections of seven days that lead us up to what God is going to do. We have in chapter 12 the start of the most important week in all of human history. In John 12, verse 1, then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. This is six days before the Lord is to be crucified. And so it was very important to have this lesson with Lazarus so that we would understand that God is able to bring back from the dead. It was the picture that the apostles got in, in, in Matthew chapters 16 and 17, chapter 17, the transfiguration, but Jesus had just told them that he's going to be crucified, but he is going to be raised from the dead. Again, a point they never really seemed to grasp onto, they never seemed to get, and that's what contrast we're going to see here in Mary, Mary gets it, and we'll see why as we get into our scripture today. But that was the point of the transfiguration. So that they would see Moses, they would see Elijah, and they would see the Lord Jesus Christ in their glorified bodies so that they would be aware that our God, our God is truly able. And so it's a week before. But this week, 
this week, or at least the accumulation of this week, is going to be what all other biblical weeks, all other weeks of men and, and women are going to be based upon. Because there are other important weeks in the Bible. There was the week of creation, but without the cross, it would have been better that creation was never created. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, the preacher addresses that point. Therefore, I praise the dead who are already dead. Now keep in mind, the writer of Ecclesiastes is looking at these things apart from a relationship with God, trying to figure out life apart from God. He says, therefore, I praise the dead who were already dead more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never even existed. He who has never been born, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Because again, he's looking out throughout all of society, all of the country, all of the world, and he's just seeing really... If there's no God, what's the use? What, what, what really is, is the use? And he comes to the conclusion, unfortunately, apart from God, it'd be better off if the person was never born. And we see the 70th week of Daniel. That's a week of seven years, and we know that to be the great tribulation. It's this floating week that is going to come about at the end of the church age. But again, without the cross, the tribulation is just a minor punishment con uh, compared to eternity apart from God. There's the first week of Jesus' ministry, his baptism, the calling of the apostles, the changing of water to wine. Without the cross, nothing, none of these things really matter. So this is the six-day period of time before the Passover lamb is to be killed, as well as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right now, it's probably either Friday or Saturday before the crucifixion. We'll be looking at the triumphal entry in weeks to come. That is going to be the very first Palm Sunday. That'll be the day when all of the lambs enter in, and this time you're going to be having that Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so we see 1 Corinthians 5-7, Indeed, Christ is our Passover who was sacrificed for us. And so again, that's what it's leading towards. It's leading towards the death. All of the miracles, they were all leading towards the death of Christ. You can even go back further, because again, John, John is writing this paper, if you will, where he presents that which he believes, and he goes into the thesis of what he believes, and he's explaining these things, and he's showing proofs, Old Testament scriptures, so that we would truly know that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is truly God. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. And so this is just over the hill. You have the temple, and then, um, I guess it'd be to the south, yes, to the south of the temple. You have the Mount of Olives, and over on the other side of the Mount of Olives is Bethany, and, and um, not Jerusalem, and um, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem, that's it. Um, is Bethlehem would be over there. So it was just less than a day's walk from the from the other side of the hill it says they made him a supper and martha served but lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him now in the jewish culture and we experience this as well to dine with somebody is to share an intimate relationship with that person very rarely do you go out to dinner with somebody that you don't really care for very rarely do you invite somebody over to your house for dinner that you're not too fond of Usually it's friends or family, but you get together and it's a joyous thing. We've got a dining room and we've got a fairly good-sized table there. 
but I figured out a way that I can put two by fours, sit them on top of the, the table, have some plywood and make it into a pretty big table. We can get pretty much our whole family around it. And it's just a blessing to be able to sit down to a meal with all of your children and your grandchildren and their spouses. And, and it's, just, it's just a joyous occasion. Well, they're more than likely celebrating the new life that Lazarus has. And so there's definitely intimacy here. There's just that joy of having like-minded people together. When we started the church some 18-plus years ago, I was on staff at Calvary Chapel Chino Valley, but when we started the church, it was necessary for me to get a job, to leave there, and to put all of my attention here. And I was an electrician, so I had a trade to fall back on, but um, it, it was going to be difficult to find a part-time job and to be able to balance that with ministry because construction's not really along those lines. But a friend of mine who was a contractor hired me. He's a born-again believer. He goes to Calvary Chapel Chino Valley, and he worked it out that I had Mondays off and I had Thursdays off, and then I would work Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and if I needed to work one of those, and those other days that I took off, and then so be it. But the thing about it is, he was a brother, he understood, we were friends, and he was, had a small part of the building of our fellowship here, even in that. Well, they're moving to Austin, Texas, and they came over last night. If you're a friend of my wife, you probably saw their picture on, uh, on the Facebook. But they came over last night, it was just a blessed time, especially when you know it's not going to happen very regularly as they're moving to Texas. But again, you've just got that intimacy, and that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing intimacy. You've got this little snapshot of this great future. Um, it's going to show up there in Luke chapter 14, but in actuality, maybe Revelation chapter... Uh, yeah, Revelation chapter 19 would probably be a better picture. The marriage supper of the Lamb. When all of those who've been raptured, all of those who have died and gone to be with the Lord... You've got this great marriage supper where there's going to be rejoicing. It's going to be a festive time because God's people have all been brought together. And we see the intimacy that is, is, is there. And how could God express that? He uses that supper to do so. Verse 2, there they made him a supper and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. So I believe they were celebrating the bringing back to life of Lazarus, but it says they made him the supper. They understood who it was that was essential in this new life that their brother had. Now in Matthew's account, there's an account in Matthew chapter 26 and also in Mark chapter 14. It's important when you're studying the Bible and you see something as far as such as what we're looking at here tonight to go back because the other Gospels will give you maybe some information that you don't see in the account that you have here. And so in Matthew's account, we see that there was up to 17 people present at this meal. Jesus was there. There was the 12 apostles. Lazarus was there. Martha was there. Mary was there. And the homeowner, Simon, was there. Could have been Simon's wife. Could have been more people. But there was at least 17 people that were at this banquet. And really what we have here is you've got rich pictures of the things that are going on. We've got a rich picture of our future. We've got rich pictures of our present. Rich picture of our worship, as I pointed out early. Rich picture of those who walk with Christ, seemingly are part of the body of Christ, but in actuality have rejected Christ. 
we've got this picture even of this contrast of who will truly be at that marriage supper. You've got these two men. Lazarus is the first one. He's a picture of those who had died in Christ but have been resurrected and are now seated at the Lord's table. Those born-again believers who have gone before us and now they're absent from the body, present with the Lord, but they're going to be at that great marriage supper of the Lamb. It's why the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 12-16, through 16, I don't want you to mourn as those who have no hope to those who have gone asleep, those who have died before us. He doesn't want us to mourn as those who have no hope. Well, that was the problem with the preacher in Ecclesiastes. Without God, he realized there's no hope. It'd be better off if we were never born. And you can have that mindset when the loved one dies, but there's this great understanding based upon Christ. Just as surely as he raised Lazarus from the dead, He's going to raise our loved ones from the dead as well. And I shouldn't say he's going to. He has the moment that they passed into eternity. They've absent from the body, present with the Lord, and where they are, we will be there one day also. Well, Lazarus is a picture of that. Then you have a picture in this man, Simon, a picture of those who are to be raptured and now sitting at the Lord's table. Now, Matthew describes Simon in Matthew chapter 26, verse 6, it says, this is the house of Simon the leper. He had leprosy. Now, with Simon, it's interesting that they just call him Simon the leper. It's like everybody knows Simon, and the leprosy, it pinpoints who he was. And I would imagine it was written like that because, well, the Lord is making a point here. Again, and this point is going to kind of go throughout what we're going to be looking at here tonight. And so... Simon the leper. Now, since a leper was not allowed to live in towns or cities or to associate with non-lepers, Simon had to be somebody who was cured. This was Simon who really was formerly a leper. Now, it was beyond anybody that somebody could be cured from this because nobody was ever cured from it. Miriam was cured from it. There were some people who had temporary leprosy. The Lord made a point. But nonetheless, Miriam was cured from it. But very few people were ever cured from it. Nobody definitely during the days of the Lord other than those whom the Lord touched. And so I would imagine you would say Simon the leper, and it's like, oh yeah, because there's a lot of lepers going on, then, a lot of leprosy going on then, but Simon the leper, why would he stand out? He would stand out because he was one of the few who were ever healed from it. And so Simon is a picture of those who've been given a new body. And we so look forward to that day, that day if it truly happens in our lifetime when Christ comes back for the church, and in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that our bodies are changed, we're transformed from this earthly body into that heavenly body. Those who have died before us, there's that passage through death. If we're around during the rapture of the church, there's going to be the passage through the rapture. And again, Jesus just simply said, watch, watch. When? Nobody knows, but watch. And as we watch, especially a few years ago as we studied Ezekiel, Sunday night as we studied the book of Isaiah, we're seeing that, if you're watching, you're seeing some pretty amazing things. You're seeing how things are matching up biblically. We're seeing how always the focus is in the Middle East. And God kept, keeps our attention there because he stuck all the oil there. He stuck Israel there. And that's going to be a big player in the midst of the end times. And so what are we to do? We're to watch. Where are we to watch? The Middle East. And we're to watch Israel. And we're to watch the situations. Russia. 
as they developed there. Just when it seems like Russia was going to be reduced to a second-class nation, here they are powerfully on the scene again. What are they doing? They're, I was going to say marching. They're sailing warships down through um, the English Channel. And it's as if they're thumbing their nose at us. They were sending, they're playing games with the airplane, with their warplanes and, and whatnot, coming right up to, uh, up to borders, right up to stretching limits and whatnot. And again, it's like we're back in the Cold War times once again. And so where was Simon the leper cleansed? Or where was he healed? We really don't know. We have no clue exactly where it was. Where possibly could it have been? Well, in Matthew, it speaks of a man, although it doesn't say his name, but in Matthew chapter 8, verse 1, when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. So this is after the um, Sermon on the Mount. And behold, a leopard came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And so there was a man healed. Was it Simon? Don't really know. But there's this man who at one point was a leper, and God changed him. He transformed his body just as truly as he'll transform ours if, in fact, it's during our lifetimes that the rapture happens. So either way, we're, we're either going to be like a Lazarus, we're going to die, but we're going to be resurrected into heaven, or we're going to be as Simon the leper, our bodies are going to be instantly transformed. Either way, you end up at the supper. doesn't really matter how you get there. Do you really care? As long as you get there, as long as you're part of the people who are invited that. Because, again, if you recall Revelation chapter 19, your dining location will dictate where you are with God. You're either going to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb or the supper that the birds of the air are going to be feeding upon. Is it going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb where you're with Christ or is it going to be part of those who come up against Christ and are destroyed? Same chapter, same point, man makes his decisions. And then we've got the same person that we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks, Martha. Martha's a changed person, though. And we've seen that change. It, it, it happened earlier in the Gospel of John in, in chapter 11 when Jesus directly confronted her. Martha said to him in verse 24 of chapter 11, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And it's kind of neat how he says, do you believe this? Because what did she do? She does what a lot of people do, just kind of gives a general theological answer to a question. Yeah, I know he'll raise on that one last day, and she's probably regurgitating something that she heard before. Because we look at her attitude that she has, rebuking the Lord. She's rebuked the Lord twice, as far as that time when her and her sister were, well, she was serving and her sister was sitting at the Lord's feet. And then here, Lord, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. And so we see this great change. Verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. And that's what you're looking for. Somebody who acknowledges Jesus Christ as Lord, but even the demons do that. But then somebody, yes, Lord, submits themselves to Christ 
as Lord. It's one thing to acknowledge Christ. A lot of people do that. Even demons do that. But to submit yourself or to surrender yourself to him as Lord, that's what makes all the difference. That's what she does. And I believe that verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. I believe that this has worked the change. Because what did she do? The essential element of belief as part of the salvation process that was rewarded with her becoming born again. And again, it's through that that we see her attitude completely change. She now seems to be contently serving without the frustrations of before. Verse 2, there they made him a supper, and Martha served. That's all you hear. That's all you hear. And Martha was there, and we've heard a lot about her before, but Martha served. And so here we have two things as far as service. First, with the proper knowledge of who Jesus is, your Lord, it's no longer a burden. She's just doing what God desires to do, and she's now very content with that. And secondly, she serves with just very little notice. She's not the focal point anymore. She just knows what she's supposed to do, and she's doing it, and for her now, that's okay. It really seems as if Martha has the gift of hospitality, and very seriously, she has the gift of hospitality. She, she's serving, she's making people feel comfortable, she's understanding that there's a work of ministry going on here, and her little part is just simply to prepare the meal, clean up afterwards, and do all of these things, and she's good with that. The problem before, although it was probably a gifting she had, she was doing it in the flesh. And any work that is done in the flat flesh will have to be maintained in the flesh. And that's exactly what she was doing. She became frustrated in the work. If you're serving the Lord and you're just becoming angry or you're becoming frustrated, you really need to re-examine. Am I doing this in the flesh? Am I doing this with some unreasonable expectation? Or am I just giving it all to Jesus? Because for Martha now, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to do what I know that I'm called to do, and then God is going to use it, and it's going to be a tool in the hand of God, and I can trust God to such a degree that he'll, he'll cause what he desires to happen with it to happen. I no longer need to make it happen, or at least thinking that I need to make it happen. Hard thing about coming up and giving a sermon every week, we can look at Okay, that one over there is sleeping. That one over there is he, he's counting the lights up in the ceiling. That one over there, and I had somebody doing this before, is playing video games on their telephone. And, and, and so you can start gauging, you know, what God's doing or how good your sermon is based upon the reaction of people, and you can't do that. Whatever it is you're doing, you're doing it for the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it be cooking, cleaning, or, or, or preaching, whatever it might be, you just let it out. How do you defend the gospel? Just let it out of its cage. Same way you defend a 500-pound gorilla. You let it out of its cage. And so what do you, you just do what God has called you to do. And if it's of the Holy Spirit, then God is going to cause the work to come to pass, and his purposes will happen. When do we get frustrated? When our purposes don't happen. When we think how things should end up. When we don't see that happening, we become frustrated. And so hospitality, a gift listed in Romans chapter 12, verse 13. But the fact of the matter is all gifts come from the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, then Mary, then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard 
anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Kind of have a little bit of difficulty here. As I said, this account is mentioned in Matthew and in Mark. Now, in Matthew and in Mark, she anoints his head with the oil. And here, we're told that she anoints his feet. How, how does that rectify? How is it justified? Well, I would imagine, I've never had oil dumped on my head that I recall, but if you dump a significant amount of oil on somebody's head, sooner or later, it's going to end up at their feet. It's not like water that's going to drip down. It's going to follow the contours of the body and go down to the feet. So that would be my explanation for it. And so I, I, I think all of these things, they all come together, and I don't see any reason for any contradiction or belief that there's any contradiction here. And so we have the one here first who gets the second most attention. The one who gets the most is going to be Judas. But Mary, Mary's actions, what we see here, are actions of worship. And there's very valuable lessons of worship here. Very valuable lessons of worship. Now, I've had people say, well, how come we never have a foot washing? I think, ladies, you had a foot washing at one of your retreats. But again, you can't just get caught up in the actual foot washing. It's what is transpiring here. And really what you see here is you see this woman who is truly submitting her life to Christ. We saw the same thing with her sister. But the thing about it is some people are going to be more visible than the other. And now with Martha, that's okay. That's okay. Now, with Mary, we see somebody who's going to be a little bit more visible, a little bit more seen, because what is she doing? She's this picture of somebody who is worshiping Christ, worshiping Christ with all that she is, worshiping Christ in a very intimate way. So her actions are actions of worship, and worship is to be a predominantly public act. It's not something we are to hide away, but it is to be something that we are to do openly and very publicly. As stated before, said it many times, pretty much say it every time we look at Mary, every time we see Mary, where is she at? At the feet of Jesus. She's always at the feet of the Lord. John chapter 11, verse 32, Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet. Luke chapter 10, verse 39, And she, Martha, had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet. Now, again, in the Jewish mind, somebody who sits at the feet of somebody is somebody who is learning from that person. Now, what was the problem with the apostles? Because, again, as I pointed out early, earlier, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, I'm going to die. They're going to take me, and they're going to crucify me, but I'm going to rise again. Matter of fact, I'll give you a visual illustration of that. He didn't say that, but they did get one in Matthew chapter 7 in the transformation. And still, these guys were clueless. They didn't understand. Why didn't they understand? I mean, how can we have people that, that study the Scriptures, know the Bible, but they never really understand? Well, it was all their attitude. The attitude of the apostles were, they always wanted to be by his side. Remember, John and James' mother was trying to find status position for her son. Either that, or they even wanted to take his place. They had an improper perspective of where their place were to be before their Lord. It seems like Mary, she was the only one to truly understand that Jesus was to die and the reason that he was to die. 
and maybe even through this anointing of him, understanding that he's only going to be in the tomb for three days, and, and really the symbolism is she's anointing his death, understanding that he is the Lord of life and the Lord of death. Maybe she very well even understood that he was going to, well, there's just going to be no time to anoint him later on. In Luke chapter 10, verse 39, again, and she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet, notice the last part, and heard his word. Sat at the feet of the Lord, came to the Lord, the position for the purpose of learning, and heard his word. You can present yourself for learning, and you can have material that is corrupt. Present yourself for learning, you can fall asleep. Present yourself for learning, and you can hear his word. So she's got an advantage that nobody else, everybody had, nobody else took. She came to that place of learning, and she paid attention to what was going on. So I believe that that's why we have a proper perspective of Mary. That's why she's always worshiping him. That's why she's anointing him. She's understanding. She probably doesn't know the timing and all of the details, but she's understanding to a degree what's going on here. You need to be seated at the feet of the master, and you need to hear his word. You need to be seated at his feet. You need to be in the place of, of, of learning, and then you've got to have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. It's essential. It's what God does. It's how God has worked. It's why Jesus was called the Word. It's the necessity of speaking and hearing. And as we are spoken to as we hear, then we go and speak for others to hear. And by faith to faith, we see that this has been going on like this even throughout the generations. And so it filters back to the centrality of the Word of God. In the book of Psalms, the longest chapter, what's the longest chapter in the book of Psalms? 119. What's Psalm 119 about? Well, it's easy to figure out what it's about because every verse in Psalm 119 makes an allusion to the Word of God. You may call it something different, but it, every verse, I can't remember, it was 175 verses, I just don't recall. 176, I was off one. And so were you, whoever said yeah. You were wrong. <laughs> See, you should always check out whatever the pastor says. 176 verses in this longest chapter in the Bible, and it just hammers in the Word of God. And Psalm 119, verses 33 through 40, thinking about what we're talking about back with Mary seated at the feet and hearing God's Word, the psalmist writes, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your judgments are good. Behold, I long for your precept. Revive me in your righteousness. Now Mary didn't write that. But that type of person that she is, she could have. She had that desire and that passion for the Word of God, not just to show up to church, not just to sit at His feet, but to hear the Word of God, to honestly get something out of it. Now, it's been said by those who figure such things out, and I don't remember the exact percentages, but from a sermon, people will only get 
10% of what you said or whatever. And if that's true, that's okay. Get the 10%. Get whatever it may have, whatever the Lord may have. If it's just something small, get that something small because I guarantee you God will make it into something big. We've got to understand the magnitude of what God is able to do with his word, not taking these things to routine or in hypocrisy, but truly embracing these things and seeing that these things become part of our Christian lives. And as we see this, then we see growth. And so, Mary, we see the profound effect it had because she had a desire to be there, but she also had a desire to learn. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard. We see a couple of concepts connected with worship here. First thing Mary did was she worshiped Jesus from her substance. This is expensive. This is costing her something. This fragrant oil more than likely cost her one year's worth of her wages. Probably even more than that, her being a woman, and they wouldn't have made so much as a man had made back then. So this is very costly. How much do you make in a year? She's basically giving that to God. She's giving that to the Lord. She's giving that to the Lord because she understands that worship will require something of me. King David, when he was offered the land for the temple, this man was just going to give it to him. He says, far be it from me that I would worship the Lord somewhere or with something that cost me nothing. He understood the concept. What can we give to him who is about to give all to us? I mean, especially in Mary's case, he's about to die for her. And so she's just giving back to her. She's understanding that in comparison, this is absolutely nothing, but it's everything that I have, and that's enough. We see by Mary's example that she worships him in faith. Now, why would she invest one year's worth of wages in that oil of spikenard? Because they didn't really have banks back then. You didn't want to put your cash under a blanket, so you would make investments in things and stuff. You could always go and sell it, and that's probably what she did. And so really what she was doing when she was worshiping the Lord, not just giving of her substance for that day, but also for the future. She was giving it over to the Lord because she was submitting herself to the Lord. Mary more than likely knew to some degree that Jesus would not see cor corruption. Psalm verse 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 10, your holy one will not see corruption. She understood the word of God understands the things that are going on. So instead of anointing his body after death, where there wouldn't be a body to anoint, she's anointing him before his death. And so she's giving of her future, but she's also giving of the one who she fully expects is going to come back to life. Verses 4 through 6. But. And this is a very unfortunate but in the Bible. Usually they're good. This one's not so good. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put into it. Judas, Judas is the antitype of Mary. Now you need to see the magnitude in which Judas, which we'll see in the chapters to come, the magnitude to which he has rejected Jesus. He looked at God in the face for three years and stole the money. He looked at life in the face for three years and rejected him and sold him out. And, and I think it even goes deeper than that. If you look at verse 4, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him. 
Well, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 6, Mark 14, 3, speaks of Simon the leper. And the way it just says Simon here, I'm wondering, was Simon the leper who's been healed by the Lord Jesus Christ, is he the father of Judas? Judas experienced all these things that, that Christ was able to do, and even in a personal way. I mean, can you imagine if you had a relative that had leprosy? If you had a relative that had leprosy, let's just say your father had leprosy, you could never have any contact or fellowship with your father at all. And so the, the way it just says Simon, it just makes it sound like, okay, this is the one whose house that they're at. <clears throat> and, and that being the case, he could never have fellowship with dad, but now Christ has restored that. And so he's got a firsthand picture of all that Christ is able to do, and you see the hardness of his heart, and that he still, he still rejected Christ. Judas is definitely the anti-type of Mary. When Mary gave of her substance, he was concerned with taking. Mary's worship is sacrificial, his worship is selfish. Mary gave, Judas robbed. Mary worshiped about 300 denarii, Judas would later sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver or 120 denarii. And so, we end with Mary's testimony and Judas's testimony. In Mary's, we see it in Matthew 26, 13. It's the same account. Jesus said, And surely I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached, in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her, as a memorial to those who sit at the feet of the Lord and hear. Here we are tonight speaking of that memorial. And then Judas Proverbs 10, verse 7, the memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. Do you know anybody who's named Judas? Do you know of any? Not that there aren't people out there. I'm sure there are. And, you know, that would be a natural name for people to name their kid because it means praise. But I don't know of any Judases. That name just kind of rots. Verses 7 and 8, but Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept for this day uh, for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. Just want to back up to verse 3 in closing. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of oil. One last point of worship. This woman also worshipped him in submission to him. She got down and she wiped his feet with her hair. Now we're told in 1 Corinthians 11.15, but if a woman has long hair, and it's not so much that your hair is long, but hair as a woman would have hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. So my wife will tell me, I'm going to go to the beauty parlor, and this is how much I'm going to expend, and this is biblical, so I just got to let her do it. No, it's, you know, there, there's something there. You know, you don't see many women that look like my hair. That would be something strange, you know, somebody sick or, or whatever it might be. So that, that, that's a reality that we can all agree upon. So in order to worship him, what we see here is she's surrendering her glory to the Lord and came to him emptying herself of herself. And again, it's another important point in worship. What are we doing when we worship? Raising hands, a universal sign of surrender. And that's the idea, Lord, I'm just giving all to you that I would be reduced and you would be magnified. And then we see because this woman sat at the feet of the Lord and because she heard his word, this house was, and worshiped him, this house was filled with the fragrance of oil. The fragrance of the oil. 
Why was th- this is the original um, essential oil, if you will? Why was this house filled with the fragrance of oil and the significance of it? Well, you looked at Jesus as the example. Jesus has this oil. We know from the other gospels it was poured upon his head. Probably went all the way through his body, all the way down to his feet, and so the fragrance of this oil would fill that place. Well, oil. We know oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. We just saw that really this this meal place is a picture of the church. And so everywhere that Christ walks within the body of Christ, he's here. It's the Holy Spirit. There's the fragrance of Christ. But the thing about it is, here, Jesus is only going to physically be there for another week. Now, think of how when Jesus left later that night, that the fragrance would remain. It was still there, but instead of Christ, it was now passed on to the one who sat at his feet, the one who heard his words, and the one who intimately worshipped him. Now that Holy Spirit, if you will, is seen, not by Christ, but, you know, through Christ, yes, but by his people. So that would be us. If we're sitting at the feet of the Lord, if we're hearing, and if we intimately worship him, then the Holy Spirit, others are going to experience the Holy Spirit from and through our lives. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14-17, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ amongst those who are being saved and amongst those who are perishing. To the one, we're the aroma of death leading to death. That would be those who would reject the gospel. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ Jesus. And so... It all boils back down to what we see here is Judas never really sat at the feet of the Lord. Judas never really heard the word. Judas, instead of intimate worship, he was more about what's in it for me. But we must consider Mary. Mary sat at his feet, heard his words, and intimately worshipped him. And what we need to consider is, are we doing that? Are we doing that? Are we presenting ourselves to Bible study? But are we really hearing it? Are we singing songs? What are we really worshiping? We need to consider these things because blessed are we if we do these things. Father, as you have called us to be diffusers, that, Lord, the aroma of Christ would would be experienced through our lives, that truly as Mary spent time with you and that aroma got on her and others were able to partake of that, may it be the same way with us. Because we have spent time with you, that others would be able to partake of the aroma of Christ through our lives and through our ministries. And so, Father, once again, we just thank you for this evening. Lord, we pray for those whom we have prayed for, that you would move and work in their lives. We lift up, Lord, our time in your word, that, Lord, you would make these things real within our lives. And even this last song, Father, I pray that we would sing as saints, sing as people who understand the magnitude, Lord, of all that you've done. Mary understood that, and she was willing to give all. Father, may we be willing to give all, even for this short period of time that, Father, we would truly experience intimacy with our Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? As Sean announced, I think he announced, that um, uh, Sunday is going to be the last day to sign up for the Christmas choir. We've got quite a few, I think we have about 14 people signed up for it, and so 
uh, if that's something that you want to do, get signed up because we're coming to, uh, to the end of the sign-ups and getting ready to start the practice. Other than that, have a great weekend. God bless you guys.